If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Think of the Wars of the Roses, and it's likely that you think of soldiers from opposing houses thundering towards each other on the battlefield. But there was another hidden war that also took place a woman's war, conducted through rumours and intrigue. Cecily Neville, the wife of Richard, Duke of York, and the mother of Richard III, was embroiled in this conflict, plotting behind the scenes in a bid to catapult her family to the throne. Her turbulent life has inspired a new novel, Cecily, by Annie Garthwaite. Our section editor, Rhiannon Davies, caught up with her about Cecily's story. So thanks for joining me today, Annie, and we're going to be talking about your new book, Cecily, which I'm very excited to discuss with you. So for my first question, who is Cecily and why is she important? Well, the first thing to recognise about Cecily Neville is that she had an extraordinarily long life. So she was born in 1415, which is the year of Agincourt and all of that. 
and she lived right through to 1495 into the first decade of the Tudor dynasty. And that 80-year period of her life was one of the most tumultuous in English history, really. So we have the the French wars that have continued on and on and on, and then we have civil war in England during the Wars of the Roses. And throughout that the 80-year period of her life, Cecily was one of the most, if not the most powerful women in England and never very far from the political centre and the heart of power. And her life was full of conflict and difficulty, success and failure. So she's fascinating for a novelist from that point of view. Her parents were Ralph, Earl of Westmoreland, was her father, Her mother was Joan Beaufort, who was the illegitimate daughter of John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford. So she came very much from a Lancastrian household, if you like, although she became ultimately the matriarch of the House of York. She was married when she was eight years old, as was very common in those times, to the man who would become Richard, Duke of York. And her marriage was one of a series of absolutely dazzling marriages that Ralph and Joan made for their children. And typically, Ralph would acquire the wardship of young noblemen who had rich titles in their pockets and marry them into his family, to his own children, in order to... uh, import those titles and and the wealth that went with them into his own household. So when Richard and Cecily married, Richard was heir to the earldom of Cambridge. That sounds great, doesn't it? And certainly it was a very good start, but it was also, this marriage was something of a gamble because Richard was the son of a traitor. His own father had been executed for treason against Henry V in 1415. So there's a little bit of a cloud hanging over him. So you can imagine that Ralph would have taken him into his household in order to make a good king's man of him, to make a good Lancastrian of him, and marry him to his daughter. And then two years after the marriage, things got even better for Richard, one might say, because his maternal uncle died childless leaving him heir to the Dukedom of York, but also to a very rich Mortimer inheritance that carried with it a claim to the throne which was arguably much better than that of the guy who was currently sitting on the throne, the the young king, Henry VI. And that royal claim was to become a millstone around his neck and a real challenge to Cecily and to Richard throughout their lives. And before we come on to that in more detail, would you be happy to read an extract of your book for us? Yeah, I'd love to. I thought I'd read to you from the opening chapter. And the novel begins when Cecily is 16 years old and she's begun her married life proper with Richard at about this time, when she was about 15 years old. And their first trip together, if you like, is to travel from England into France, ostensibly to witness the crowning of Henry VI as King of France. He was the only English king ever to have been crowned, you know, King of both England and France. But another event took place around that time, 
which was to have huge implications for the war in France, and that Cecily was almost certainly witness to. And that was the burning of Joan of Arc. And you have to imagine that Cecily is 16 at this point. She's still a very young woman. Joan, who she's watching executed, being executed, is only 19 years old. So I found myself wondering as a novelist what impact that would have on a young girl. So I'll start with with that. The desperate parade passes close enough that Cecily can see Joan's eyes. One is closed by livid bruises. The other, white-rimmed and wide, is fixed on the crucifix borne high above her by a priest, leading the way to death and whatever might lie beyond that. Joan's lips are moving, and Cecily recognises the words of the Ave falling, stuttering and fast. She wonders what she prays for. Rescue? Or just an end to this? I would pray for the death of every Englishman here, Cecily thinks. Then suddenly she's afraid, for no one can fathom the power of Joan's prayers, and Richard stands beside her, who has seen Joan tried and nodded his head at her sentence. Her breath catches and she pants once, and he's holding out a hand to steady her. She raises a palm, shakes her head to signal no, then makes a fist to hide her fingers trembling. He draws back, and she feels his gaze follow hers to where the guards are handing Joan into the reaching arms of the men who wait to receive her. They draw her up, bare legs flailing, then bind her and bring more wood so that she stands deep among a thicket of staves. She can no longer hear Joan's prayers, so out of pity and to guard her own soul, she speaks them with her as the men clamber down and reach for their torches. At last the fire is set, and the flames lick like dogs at Joan's feet and thighs. Cecily feels their growing heat against her own cheek as Joan's voice, steady at the last, rings out above her head. All I have done was by God's order. Then, urgent as the priest's arms falter and his burden dips, hold up the cross of Christ that I may see it as I die. Cecily narrows her eyes against livid sparks as Joan's prayers give way to hacking coughs and shrieks and sudden silence. She sets herself to watch as flesh burns, blossoms and falls away. There's grit in her eyes. Sweat runs the cleft of her shoulder blades and beneath her clasped hands, her stomach shrivels, but she won't flinch. This is a test. Fantastic. It's a very gripping start to your novel. And it actually leads on really well to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is about the Hundred Years' War, which is the backdrop of the first portion of the book, really. And I wondered... Because Richard and Cecily do play a very key part in it, Richard is sent by King Henry VI to France numerous times and Cecily at points goes with him. 
What was their experience of the conflict like? I think one of the things I've noted about Richard was that he was a far better administrator than he was a fighter. And that was his preferred course of action. So although he did fight in the French wars, he placed a lot of the military responsibility for the conduct of of the war in the hands of John Talbot, who became, during this period of time, the Earl of Shrewsbury and was a great military hero. It's said that the French absolutely hated him and were terrified of him. Um, And Richard spent most of his time actually administering Normandy out of Rouen. They spent most of their time in Rouen. So I think when Richard came to France, particularly that second stint that he had in France when Cecily was with him, he was a steady pair of hands, a safe pair of hands. And there's evidence that it seems that he was trusted not only by the English living in France at the time and the garrison and so on, but by the French contingent and that he was seen as a man that the French could do business with. And he was at, he was in such an invidious position because he was at the same time conducting a war whilst simultaneously trying to prepare a path for peace. Because I think by this time it had become very clear to most Englishmen that victory was almost impossible and that a compromise of some kind was required. So Richard was trying to walk this very delicate path, I think, between trying to hold on to as many of England's holdings as it possibly could, whilst creating an environment in which negotiation for some sort of settlement of peace could come about. And thinking about his relationship with Cecily, although their marriage is arranged, it really does seem in your novel to be a genuine love match. You can really feel the the respect and the, the love that they have for each other. Um, but as well as loving each other very deeply, they're also, well, in your novel, they are equal partners. So Cecily will help him with strategy and she'll be involved when they're planning military exploits and she'll, she she plays quite a large role in the politics. How true was that and how did you go about researching that? There's certainly a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests that the marriage between Richard and Cecily was a very strong one and and that it was close. You know, they travelled together extensively. She did accompany him into France when he was posted there. She later followed him into Ireland when he was posted there. And that was not necessarily typical. You know, often aristocratic men, when they went off on these foreign postings, would leave their wives behind and it'd be, okay, see you in two years, darling, you know, off we go. But that wasn't the case. Cecily did travel with him extensively, both in this country and when they were abroad. They seemed to have spent as much time as possible together. They had 12 children together, so clearly they were intimate for a long period of time. So I get one gets the impression of a very close relationship. And certainly there is evidence of her conducting business and on his behalf, property deals and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that as much as being affectionate towards each other, they were intellectually and politically matched and that she was an equal partner in the marriage. And that's that's not wholly untypical either. You know, we tend to have this impression of medieval women 
having very little power or agency and spending most of their time doing their embroidery and waiting for a knight in shining armor to ride along. You know, and it really wasn't like that. You know, women of Cecily's status would have wielded quite considerable power and responsibility in their own right. You know, they would have been running vast estates, they would have been taking care of business, they would have been responsible for a lot of people. You know, it has been said that running the sort of estate that Cecily was responsible for would be not dissimilar to being the CEO of a mid-sized FTSE company today. So, you know, these were not meek women. These were women who understood business, understood the law, understood politics, and certainly could be an equal to their, to their parents. And there's evidence of other marriages at that time that worked similarly. And I see... I imagine between them, and there's always the, the you know, the, 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 the facts of history and then there's the novelist's imagination, isn't there? But I imagine a huge respect between the two of them. And certainly when her husband died and her son Edward came to the throne at the age of 18, it's very clear that at that point, immediately, she was at the forefront of the political business of establishing the new regime. And, you know, when Edward was first appointed, uh, first became king, accepted his kingship, and then immediately had to go north to fight another battle. Who did he leave in charge of business? Not one of his generals or one of his officers, but Cecily. He made her head of his household, which essentially was regent of the country. Now, that doesn't happen unless someone has been someone is politically experienced and used to exercising power for a period before that. So it seemed very clear to me that Cecily had served her political apprenticeship, if you like, side by side with Richard, which meant that she could step very easily into a very powerful position when her son Edward became king at such a young age. And I've read that um, your book is about how women fight wars. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to be that they fight it not with swords and violence, but with intrigue and manipulation. And it's what goes on behind the scenes and behind closed doors that you really bring to life. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Because it's not just Cecily, who's a very strong, powerful matriarch in the book. There's also Marguerite Banjo, for example. And that was one of the, the challenges of writing the novel. Because I was very clear from the outset that we were going to see this story through Cecily's eyes and absolutely from her viewpoint. Um, so if something happens when Cecily isn't there, we don't see it as readers. We only see what she sees. So unlike many books that have been set during the Wars of the Roses or the French Wars, we never go to a battlefield. So we have to understand the political manoeuvring that goes on before and after the battles take place. So when the men are off beating seven bells out of each other, the women are helping to keep their, their men's show on the road, as it were. And you can see that Cecily is a very, very competent negotiator and propagandist. Um, I don't want to uh, give away too many spoilers, but, you know, in the latter days of, of, the, of the novel, when we're waiting to see whether her son will succeed in becoming king, she holds London against her enemies with nothing more than her competence in terms of negotiating, in terms of getting men to do what she wants and needs them to do. So yes, women like Cecily fought with words, 
they fought with their bodies too, you know. The whole business of having a male heir and being able to promote that male heir was the responsibility of the women at this time. So when I say that the battlegrounds that Cecily fought on were the council chambers and the bedchambers of her life, that's absolutely true because that's where the important business took place. And you've mentioned um, childbirth and having children, and this is another element of the book that really intrigued me, is Cecily's relationship with her children Mm. because she is very desperate to fall pregnant at the start of the book. But yet when she does have her first surviving daughter, Anne, her relationship with Anne is not what you'd expect. She says, get that screeching child away from me when they are going on the boat to France. And I found that a really interesting change in her attitude. But with her with her sons, particularly with Edward, who really does seem to be her favourite, she is much more favourable when they're young. How true was that to real life? I think the, the thing that you have to remember with Cecily and the thing that must have been so challenging to her in the early years of her marriage was that although she began her married life properly with Richard when she was about 15, she didn't succeed in delivering a living child until she was 23. So eight years. Now, that was at a time when the you know medieval women, medieval aristocratic women were expected to do a lot. You know, all of the things that we've described in terms of running the household and keeping the show on the road. But the one thing they were expected to do above all and everything was to breed. And if you didn't succeed in that, then nothing much else that you did counted for anything, really. And to me, that's further evidence of the closeness between the two of them. You know, that through that eight years of barrenness, there must have been a huge question mark over Cecily's potential to deliver children. And yet Richard remained true to her. You know, other men may have put her aside. He never did. He remained true. And yes, her first child was a daughter, Anne, which also must have been you know, to some degree a disappointment because she would have really been holding out for a son. But then she does deliver a son, Henry, who dies within days of his birth. And I think that when she's, you know, the the, the point that you reference about Cecily demanding that her daughter be taken away from her because she's screaming, A, I think that's something that every woman, every mother would associate with. <laughs> But it it also takes place at a time when she's grieving. She's just lost a son, that son that she's waited so long for, and she's lost him. And I think that's the source of her frustration and, and anger with Anne. And I think that in my novelist's mind, that does shadow the relationship that she has with Anne moving forward. I do think Edward was her favorite. I really do. Um, he was, of course, the, he was the next child to be born. He was the first surviving son. He was somewhat extraordinary in his physique. You know, he was this gold, he truly was the golden boy, six foot four, broad and brawny, um, and quite brilliant. And I think she absolutely adored him. And I think there's very good evidence for that. They were extremely close. Um, 
And certainly they worked together very closely when she became, when he became king. Um, but I don't think that she failed in love to her other children, but I think her love was a pragmatic one and sometimes harsh. I do think Anne, her eldest daughter, got a fairly hard time. She was married very young to Henry Holland, who was uh, Duke of Exeter. And it certainly wasn't a, that certainly wasn't a happy marriage or a love match. And he was by all reports something of a brute. And certainly after Edward IV um, came to the throne, Anne and Henry Holland separated. And this is, this is an interesting to me demonstration of Cecily's attitude towards her children and particularly towards her daughters. She made that marriage to a man who she suspected was not a good man because he had a title and she needed to build affinity. Um, and, and, you know, that's what she was expected to do as an aristocratic woman and a dynast. So she made that marriage, which, might, which to you and I might appear cruel. But Henry Holland always fought on the sides of the Lancastrians and became an enemy. So when Edward IV did come to the throne, he was attainted and all of his possessions and properties and so on and so forth became the possession of the crown. But Cecily herself made very sure that much of that land and property was given independently to Anne. And I think that's a very practical and pragmatic example of love, that she appreciated that her daughter needed to be financially independent and she took care of it. You know, Cecily takes care of business. <laughs> so, yes. So I don't think she was a sentimental mother, but I think she was an extremely strong one and very loyal. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There comes a point when you are faced with a very stark choice. You either have to take power or power is going to destroy you, you know. And Henry VI was surrounded by a very corrupt court who had made an enemy of Richard, Duke of York, and they were bent on his destruction. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com history extra just go to indeed.com history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed we don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I'm thinking about another of her children. Obviously, Cecily is the mother to Richard III, who I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very interested to hear more about. And the thing that really struck me is that um, he really isn't Cecily's favourite, but his father, Richard, the Duke of York, definitely has a very special spot for his son, nicknamed Dickon, in his heart. Again, was that um, is that shown in the sources or is that something that you put your novelist spin on? Well, I think... I think I've, what I've tried to reflect in that is that I think there are huge similarities between Richard, Duke of York and Richard III. They were physically very alike, behaviorally they were quite alike. They faced similar challenges. They both um, tested themselves against the potential for kingship and to some extent failed. So I've always felt that they were very similar men. And, you know, they both lost their fathers very young too. There's another, you know, similarity. So for a novelist, as a novelist, I wanted to position Richard as being, uh, Richard III, the young Richard, being very close to his father and being somewhat his favourite. He was Richard was also the last of their sons to be born and the last of their children, actually. They did, Cecily did have a daughter after Richard, but again, she died very soon after her birth. So there would have been something very precious about young Richard, young Dickon, as I call him in the novel. But certainly the relationship between him and his mother in later life is not a sentimental one, but a very close one. You know, they do business together. They're often exchanging, sharing servants and, you know, sort of um, suggesting staff for one another. And their letters are, you know, friendly and familiar. But you don't get the impression of an intense, close relationship in the way that you do between Cecily and Edward, for example. Mm. I'm thinking now about Richard, so Richard, Duke of York, Richard, Mm. the father, In your book, he's really presented as the dream leader. He has all the qualities you'd want. He listens to his men. He treats them well. He tries to um, root out corruption. And he is, in a lot of ways, everything that King Henry VI is not. Mm. Is that how he was in real life? I believe so, yes. I think, and and there is a real division in historical opinion about Richard. Duke of York. There are some who say that he was a proud and arrogant man who was always aiming for the kingship. That was always, you know, that was his driving force. But to me, the evidence just isn't there for that. You know, if he had wanted to take the throne, 
he had plenty of opportunities long before he finally did make a bid for the throne. He never took those opportunities. He seems to me to have striven to be loyal to Henry VI for as long as he possibly could until it just became unviable. And I think that's an important lesson that that we, you know, as modern readers can grasp. You know, there comes a point when you are faced with a very stark choice. You either have to take power or power is going to destroy you, you know. And Henry VI was surrounded by a very corrupt court who had made an enemy of Richard, Duke of York, and they were bent on his destruction. And at that point, I think he had no choice other than to take the kingship. But my feeling is, and this is only my feeling, is that Richard didn't really want to do it. Richard wanted, you know, his father had died a traitor. He'd been brought up by Cecily's father to be a good, true servant of the Lancastrian crown. And I think that's what he wanted. And I think if Henry VI had been a good, strong king, Richard, Duke of York, would have happily been his loyal servant and died happily in his bed after a lifetime of service to him. I think that's what Richard really wanted. And it's the great tragedy of his life that that was the impossible thing that he could not have. Mm. And you've discussed Henry in your previous answer, but there was one part that I really wanted to get your thoughts on, which is in the book, um, Henry seems to have something of a mental breakdown. Did this happen in in history? What what was the um, the source there? Yes, he absolutely did. He was um, completely uh, incapable for you know several months on two occasions, on at least two occasions. And probably never truly regained his true, you know, his full mental capacity after that. Um, Now, trying to diagnose an illness that took place in someone who's been dead for 500 years is really, really difficult. But one of the things that has been suggested is that it was a sort of catatonic schizophrenia that just rendered him mute and incapable. Mm. Terrible thing to happen to a king. Yes, yes, it's certainly not what you want. And a moving tack now away from looking at the history, I really wanted to know more, obviously being a novelist, I wanted Mm. to know a bit more about the process of writing historical fiction. So my next question is, what is your ideal type of historical fiction? Do you think that accuracy should be put on a pedestal and held above all else? Or do you think the imagination should play more of a role and events should be reinterpreted to fit the plot? Mm. It's the novelist's responsibility, duty, and privilege to exercise the imagination. Absolutely the case. The question is whether it's the novelist's privilege to tamper with the truth. And I've always been rather leery of people who do that. You know, in writing Cecily, I have tried to be as factually accurate as I can be. You know, where the history is known, and and by the way, there are a lot of things that are not known or that are uncertain or that are contested, but the things that we know 
to be true, to have happened, I won't pretend they didn't. You know, if we know that a certain event took place on a certain day at a certain in a certain way and that certain people were there, I won't pretend that the other the otherwise the case was otherwise. You know, it's as simple as that. But fortunately, as a novelist, there is enough that is not known or that is uncertain or contested that you can allow your imagination to fly. And I suppose what I really wanted to do with this novel was investigate the character of Cecily Neville, what what makes her work, what motivates her, what's her life experience like, what's her, you know, intellectual and mental journey like through her life. And to that extent, if that's the purpose of the novel, I suppose, then the history simply becomes the backdrop and the context in which that investigation takes place. Um, I was really lucky when I set out to write this novel because there's actually been very little written about Cecily, even, you know, by historians. Um, There wasn't really even a biography of her until very recently. But in 2017, just as I was sitting down to write this novel in earnest, you know, (laughs) um, a wonderful woman called Joanna Lane Smith published a biography of Cecily. And she is a very eminent historian and an expert in medieval women. Um, So I begged her to have lunch with me so that I could question her. (laughs) And uh, I remember meeting her in Oxford for lunch and we talked until dinner and we were just consumed with the idea of writing about Cecily. And what do you think it is about this period that does fascinate so many people? It's just great, isn't it? I mean, you know, people have said that the Game of Thrones was based on the Wars of the Roses, and and I can kind of see that because it is, there are so many twists and turns in the story. There are so many dramatic reversals of fortune. But for me, it's the enormity and significance of the characters. You know, they are so fascinating, you know, Cecily obviously fascinates me. The whole business about Richard III, who he was, who he wasn't, whether he was a good man or a bad man, endlessly fascinating, you know. When I was in school, I I was blessed in a very ordinary Northeastern comprehensive, I was blessed with a wonderful history teacher who, you know, I think he realised that I was interested and he was on me, you know. (laughs) He was just (laughs) wonderful. But he would ask questions like, you know, what do you think he was thinking when that happened? Or why do you think she did this? You know, he was much more interested in that that than he was in, you know, what took place in 1436. You know, he was was interested in the questions about the people. So I came out with a decent A-level, but I was a bit you know, a bit misty on the dates, but I was very good at character motivation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure that served you well here. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's it with this period. It's just full of fascinating, gigantic characters, male and female, who are just intriguing. And was there any other historical fiction about this period that did inspire you when you were writing Cecily, or was it just her story and wanting to bring it to life? Yes. There was, and I'll name two. The first one was a book that I read alongside my mother when I was very young, which is called Catherine by Anya Seaton. 
And it's actually about Cecily's grandmother, who was married to John of Gaunt. She was Catherine Swinford. She was his mistress for many years and eventually his wife. And you might say the starting point for this whole story. So that was just a seminal book that I wept over in my teenage years. And then my lovely history teacher would throw books at me over the over his desk, just lob them towards me. And there would be history books, textbooks, but also novels. And he, one of the novels that he gave me was um, called We Speak No Treason by Rosemary Hawley Jarman, which was about Richard III. And uh, I, I, don't know, I was about 14 at the time, I suppose. And I just fell passionately in love with Richard III. <laughs> he was my teenage crush. I grew, I grew out of it happily, but, you know, that was where it started. When I realised that his mother was even more interesting than he was, I think I grew out of it. I'm definitely glad she's getting her due now. Um, and that takes me on really nicely to my final question, which is why do you think Cecily should be given more recognition in the history of the Wars of the Roses? Hmm. It's startling to me that she isn't given more recognition. And to a large extent, I blame Shakespeare for that. Because as much as Shakespeare maligned her son, Richard III, he didn't do a great deal for Cecily either. You know, when she appears in his history plays, she's very old, she's very pious, she's very dull, she doesn't have much to do, she has no political power or agency, she just wanders around a lot complaining about her son, really, and cursing him. And she's a bit dull. So... I think everyone's like, oh, well, that's Cecily Neville, you know, a bit bad-tempered, a bit old, a bit dull. Let's move on to something more interesting. So she's kind of slipped through the net of history. But when you look at the life that she led, you know, this, you know, and, and truly exercising power in a very feminine, female way, I think that's just intriguing. And I think we're at a point in our history as women where we're hungry for those stories, you know? We want to look back at the past and see that there have been women right through history who have exercised authority, who have achieved self-realization, and who have walked side by side with men and made their presence felt. And I think as women, we want those stories and we want to pass those stories on to our daughters because they're strengthening to us. So every every Cecily we reclaim is, you know, one more for the sisterhood, if you like. You know, it's a, it's, it's a female story reclaimed, and I think that's important. That was Annie Garthwaite. Her novel, Cecily, is on sale now, published by Penguin. You can find a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in The Wars of the Roses and Richard III, then why not check out our podcast series, The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery. Just search for Princes in the Tower to find that. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collin. Join us tomorrow for an episode on the Vikings in France. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. 
I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.